Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Oh, yeah. There it is. That's all it takes is a click of a button, and we get started. I'm so excited for today's episode. It's someone I've been really looking to talk to for a long time. The myths are on point. I can't wait to smash them. And he's joining me from all the way on the other side of the planet. His winters are my summers. It's his AM to PM. Um, he is all the way from Australia, and yet the internet is being kind to us. And, and he's the kind of marketing leader that has been doing this thing and seeing the trends and a adapting and learning about customers and buying and advertising long before Google was even a verb. Um, certified Salesforce, Pardot consultant, Marketo consultant, loves LinkedIn social selling. We're going to learn a, a bunch from him. Fellow trailblazer, Salesforce Ohana member, marketing automation consultant to the stars, Brent Walters. How are you, sir? I'm very good, Casey, and I'm honored to be on the podcast, and uh, it's good to see you again. I've really yeah. been enjoying your webinars and your podcast, too. Well, thanks, man. I, I know I, you're one of the most interactive people on there, and I know we connected up, and I was like, man, we got we to gotta get chatting on the podcast. We got to talk here. It's our marketing leadership series. We're going to talk about a bunch of things, and what I really like about you is you just tell it how it is. Uh, maybe it, you just, it's too early in the morning for you. What time is it right now? For you it's 5 37 in the morning so okay three it's not too bad yeah i've been sh i've been shifting my hours because of uh, your webinars being pretty early i thought maybe i'll just go to bed earlier from now on wake up earlier but i know you have one coming up on my friday morning that's at 2 a.m so that's gonna be a stretch Ooh, that's but... a little harsh we'll have to talk to christine about that what are you doing you kill kill her we need to adjust our schedule here maybe we'll do two maybe we'll do two maybe i'll get up Seriously. at two in the morning so that i can present to you it whatever time that would be. <laughs> but hey, so, you said what you do in my time zone, but we'll so see. I got something to hand to you, right? And you know what it is. It's coming up. I, w I want to pass you this thing and it's heavy, but I think you can handle this. So here you go. Ugh. All right, you got it? Thor's hammer? Oh, so oh look at that. It's, wow. It's come across. Game. It's changed colors. It's pink. It's and it's pink not a hammer. Now. It's actually a baseball bat, but maybe it's my Wi-Fi connection and that's why it's turned out that it's way. It's got to be that, man. Thor's hammer has turned into this like pink baseball bat of marketing smashing. Um, so take that baseball bat now, smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception, just set the record straight once and for all. Okay, well, there are a lot of myths I want to smash, but the one I want to smash the most was that uh, if you're undertaking marketing programs or campaigns and they're working, I think a lot of businesses make the assumption that all they have to do is keep on doing that same campaign or program and to put it on an endless loop. So the assumption they make is that it works once, so it's going to work again, and it's going to work every other time. So they're uh, not taking into account the other variables that will actually affect the success of those things uh, in the future. Are you telling me that I can't just put a perpetual marketing machine together and let it just magically make me more business? <laughs> well... Automation is good, but of course we have to tweak all of the elements within it anyway. So I've uh, done quite a bit of marketing for uh, big corporations and middle-sized uh, businesses. Sure. And uh, sometimes we'll do a marketing campaign and think, well, those are really good results. So yeah, obviously that'll work again. And then we actually do it a second time and 
doesn't turn out that way. So uh, I think that companies can fall into the trap of actually thinking, yeah, it'll work again. I think even marketers can actually fall into that sort of trap because they think, well, don't fix what's not broken. Um, it broke right. this time. So yeah, it'll work again. So that's uh, one of the myths I want to smash. Why, why does that happen? Like first time goes gonzo, like LinkedIn campaign. First time works great, drive a bunch of leads. Second time, goose egg. Like what is happening when that happens? Well, I think a lot of variables actually come into play. So I suppose you need to look at the time lapse between the first time you've actually done a program or campaign and the second time you do it. Yeah. And you can look at all the things that actually can change. So uh, consumer sentiment. So, uh, you know, where consumers or prospects wowed by what you've done the first time, but then are a little bit like desensitized to it the next time. Um, you need to look at market forces. Of course, that's really pertinent now because how we are now during a pandemic is very oh, different yeah. to how it was just a few months ago. But even without the pandemic, if you look at market forces, uh, you look at economic changes, uh, you look at what your competitors are doing because maybe they've actually maybe come up with a product that's a bit more appealing to the market. So there's quite a few variables that come into play. And I think that that's why that it doesn't guarantee that what you do in marketing, um, that once you do it the first time and it works, that'll actually just keep on working over and over again. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and, but like your list, what, why is this happening? Well, times have changed, right? Uh, I know a lot of people we've talked about before, like they're still trying to sell like it's the Mad Men days or it's like, like it's the 90s or, or the 80s with terrible sweaters. Like it's not, it's a different age. The market forces, um, you know what comes to mind when you mention the market forces is, is the, the people who have left their nurture campaigns on during the COVID thing. And you get all the embarrassing results when it's like, Hey, you enjoying you enjoying your air travel? It's like no, no one's enjoying like you. But you should have paused that, or, or your my hat is like thirty days late because you your your nurture said it was going to get it tomorrow. Like there's all these different things that that people weren't thinking about. They weren't being intentional about the market changing and the forces of the market that might be at play. Yeah, I think so. There's the external market forces, like you just mentioned, Casey, but. Yeah. It's also, I suppose, sometimes what comes into play are the internal forces. So uh -huh. marketing, marketers feel pressure from the inside, from senior executives, from other departments. You know, of course, uh, you know, sometimes marketers are regarded with disdain <laughs> inside corporations. Sure. Like, what do you actually really do? Uh, what are you doing now? Um, you know, we're, we're having a pandemic at the moment. So what does that actually mean? Are you actually still communicating with our customers? Um, so there's a pressure of, to feel like we need to keep on doing something. So what do we do? They you know, might be out of ideas, but so they just actually resort to doing what they were doing before. So there's that factor too, is that the inside factors and the outside factors. It's a good point about the inside factors that things are constantly changing. You know, it's funny. I, I always will say like, I hate change and, um, I'll be talking about like pocket change. Like it's so annoying to have like the, the clinking and, and, but sometimes I kind of mean I hate regular change too. But really, the other day I was thinking, we're things are always changing. So you kind of should, you know, not hide from it and not think that if you bury your head in the sand, it's not going to change. It's still going to change. In fact, embrace it and plan for change. I think what I'm getting from this, I wrote it down when you're talking, is like we need to be planning that change does happen and not thinking that we're just going to build a an immovable foundation that never changes. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I suppose it kind of hacks back to you. you've changed your baseball cap <laughs> from last I time. Have. So you are you are embracing change, but also um, the, your your point is right. Change will happen regardless of whether or not we want it. We should embrace it. And I think um, one really important element of marketing that some marketers forget is contingency planning. And I'm a real big believer in contingency planning. So if you do a certain activity or campaign or program, um, something happens, something goes wrong, then yeah. what do you do then? So you always have a backup plan. And it's hard to think about everything that can happen because it's almost like the old runs. I don't know what I don't know, but yeah. so that um, when it happens, then at least you can move a bit more swiftly. Right. Contingency planning. Well, my question to you is, I acknowledge this. I acknowledge you're right. Things are constantly changing. It's not like you can set it and forget it. How do you balance? How do you approach it? Building new things, optimizing the old things. What do you change? What do you keep? Because I think the, the, the far end opposite of all of this is what we're trying to avoid as well, which is the non-automated. Every month is a new campaign and you're not, you haven't automated anything. And then the other extreme is you've automated too much and you're not changing things. So how do you strike that balance in between the two? Well, I think it has to be subtle change. So and it has to be like very few elements at a time. It almost comes down to maybe like as a comparison, the A-B testing, you might actually do in a nurture campaign with an okay. email. And you don't go mental. Like I know some people might go with a multivariate test where they might change a lot of the elements. But of course, unless you actually have the quantity of people that you're dealing with, uh, like consumers that you're actually messaging to, it's really hard to get the right stats uh, to really measure what's actually changing. So if you keep it simple and you change one element of a time and you just compare it against each other. So it might be something as small as like, of course, in a nurture campaign, it might be your subject line. It might be the images. It might be the text. It might be the call to action. It would be one element at a time. But taking a broader stroke in mind, if you're... Uh, and this you mentioned before in the intro about the LinkedIn social selling. I've done campaigns where um, I might do a social selling campaign that's gone brilliantly the first time and has yeah. bombed the second time. Exact same market and everything. And in fact, that happened last year with a LinkedIn in-mail campaign in Singapore. And I actually didn't expect it to work well the first time, but it worked the best I've ever seen any campaign on LinkedIn. Really? And I can't, to can't totally explain it. Um, right. There are a few elements which sort of indicated that that looks like it would contribute, contribute to the success. But yeah. the second time we did it, it was flat. But I think what had happened is that the pool of candidates wasn't as good as the second time. So when it comes to changing elements and having a plan, I think most things, a lot of things could be predicted. For example, we know that usually there's an economic downturn every seven to eight years. I know like the global financial crisis was in 2008. So we had gone a long stretch, a longer than seven year stretch. Yeah. without a financial crisis and here we are now um so you kind of kind of can can anticipate that there'll be some economic changes but um also you have to look at what your competitors are doing so you might know what sort of products they're actually launching or services that are coming out how they might be viewed on the quadrant and g2 and how their market position is so there's a few things you can actually have a look at anyway which might actually help you to determine what's coming up yeah, the subtle testing, the small changes, not reinventing the wheel every day, but trying to take, I like it. It's like you're building into your process, just something that says, okay, maybe we're tweaking the subject line and seeing if it's better. 
or let's check, make sure our ad copy, you know, is still relevant today. Maybe do an A-B test with that. I, I like that because it, it, it's not, we're not throwing, throwing the whole thing out, you know, the baby with the bathwater, but we're also, we're being intentional about it. And I think that's, that's important. Yeah. So I think it's important. So it's almost partly that you're taking a conservative approach or a safe approach. Yeah. So you might actually have a safe base to work with and you might just change the elements. It's kind of like, you know, dressing a house, you know, you have your yeah. floor, you always have that, but you might change a picture on the wall or you might rearrange the furniture or something like that. I think that's what you can actually do to get through that. Right. So instead of one of those decoration shows, I don't know if you have those in Australia where they like do a makeover, they come into some terrible house, you know, and they like redo the whole thing and give them a whole new wardrobe or something. Instead of one of those, it's like, okay, don't go crazy. Let's pick something here. Okay. That couch needs to go. Let's try a different one, you know, or what could we do differently here and not just try to redecorate because we don't think anyone has time to do the full redecoration right now, at least in their marketing. So it's like picking your battles one at a time. Exactly. Because, uh, like of course, you've got your marketing budget, so you want to keep on spending it. And you True. don't want to lose it for the next financial year. So <laughs> I think that if you, if you demonstrate some activity, show some, show some return, yeah. um, show some activity, um, I think it's really a good idea because it actually keeps you going. At, um, it demonstrates to the senior executives that you're still in play, uh, that you're still doing your best for the business. So... Yeah, we do actually have the redecorating shows. I don't watch them. I'm really picky with my TV viewing, so I don't watch those. But we have a lot of renovation shows, so it's like from the ground up. Like, okay, destroy this house or destroy this room. What would you actually do? So they really go back to the beginnings down here with some of the shows. Really? So they, they really they tear the whole thing down? They're not just like, they're like gutting the house and completely re- Sometimes like gutting the inside, um, they might actually keep the walls, but everything on the inside goes. Right. Uh, yeah, Australians are really, really into renovating, and they they're really quite house proud, so they really love doing stuff like that. It's like, I think stuff like that. you need like a you need like a marketing renovation podcast or show on your on your end. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I can I can interview you for it. So maybe you, you can do a global one. There you go. Yeah, totally. No, I'll have to fly down for that. Once we get the travel thing going on, I'll have to you know, justify the travel, be able to get down there, bring have the family. You, been, you haven't been down here before? No, no, never. Okay. Never. So uh, I remember you said once on one of the webinars, how do you pronounce Melbourne? Is that, it's like Jason Bourne. I said, no, it's like Burn, but it's actually more like Bun. So I said I'm from Melbourne. So it's almost like B-U-N, Bun, like you'd get at a bakery, but with Melbourne. the slight R. Melbourne, exactly. You just nailed it. Oh, perfectly. I nailed it. I got, <laughs> so I got a local. potential here. I, can, I should move. So, yeah, that's interesting. So, if you hear anyone say Melbourne, then they're like, what? They're just, they don't know what they're talking about. You just know they came off the last plane. So, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so ah, another tourist. <laughs> but um, it, people assume that it's actually phonetic. I mean, that's how it would be pronounced if you actually look right. at it. Well, that's how you pronounce it because. You know, that's how you say Jason Bourne. But the other one too is like Brisbane. A lot of people from the US will say Brisbane. They actually yeah. think like it looks like, I suppose it does look like Bane, but it's actually Brisbane. It's kind of like Melbourne, Brisbane. It must be an un thing here in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> it's also why nobody can learn English because it's different everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, yeah. you know, a lot of this change gets us thinking about, you know, formulas. And if things are changing, it can be really hard to, you know, make, 
I think in our minds, we think it, well, first of all, I thought maybe it doesn't change. And then in our minds, we think maybe there's a magic formula. We just got to find it and repeat it, but we've broken down. You can't repeat it. So does that mean formulas are tossed out too? Or what, what do you think? Well, it depends where formulas are applied. And I suppose that's a really wide ranging term with formula. So recently I've been reading things about um, what to do in an economic downturn in terms of the branding, the marketing you need to do. So a lot of companies, of course, actually just dial down their marketing and just turn it down because they're looking to save money. Well, we have to save money. Where can we save it? Let's save it anywhere we can. And unfortunately, a lot of companies, what they do is they actually got their marketing budget. So of course, you've seen like a lot of marketers have actually been let go as have a lot of other functions. I think that's a huge mistake. So if the formula from the senior executive is like, oh, our revenue is way down. So let's actually cut back costs everywhere. I think the formula of actually reducing the marketing budget is a big mistake. So what you need to do is you just need to keep on having a presence in the market. Because I remember um, that's one of the things we discussed is like marketing is not like a function where you can just dial it down, dial it back up anytime you like, and it just works perfectly. It's almost like a factory. You know how some factories are never shut down because to shut it down actually costs a lot of money. You sort of wonder, well, you don't need to produce as much because the market doesn't demand it. But, you know, at, at the moment, it's kind of like well, tell that. Tell me about that. Or, what, what, what happens, what makes a factory where it's, it's just expensive to shut down? It's just... I think it has to do with, um, like, things freeze up within the system. Um, I know it's the case for oil rigs because I was reading an article on that about a month ago and apparently like with fracking because because of the way the price of oil has actually dropped, of course, a lot of fracking in the U.S. has stopped and then they were producing oil and they were paying people to take the oil because apparently it's too expensive. It's more expensive to shut down the well because when you shut down the well, things get blocked. So with the oil being pumped up, the pipes down below, they could get cold, they could snap that'll be really costly to fix. It's almost like you have to keep on pumping because it'll actually be cheaper than the alternative. Wow, suppose, yeah. And I suppose it's a little bit like marketing that way because if you actually, if you have an economic downturn and you dial it down and you don't, or you do very little marketing activity, the amount of work you'll actually put in, you'll have to put in by the time the market ramps up will just be enormous. And of course, all your competitors will be doing the same thing. So that makes it even worse. So... I remember reading somewhere recently that if you want a certain market share, you, you have like um, what they call, I think it's ESOV, excess, excess share of voice. If you have, uh, let's say, 15% market share, but you want to get to 20, you have to spend at about the level of 20% in order to reach that 20% over time. That's what you have to do. So with marketing, I think it's a huge mistake for companies to dial it down. I've, you know, I've had a few clients who said, well, look, we're not doing anything now. We'll see how we are in a few months. Um, and I thought, okay, well, you can still do a little, but of course that sounds really self-serving. But you know, the, the evidence suggests that that's what happens with an economic downturns. The ones that actually keep on plugging away marketing-wise come out better at the end of those. Right. And this is all good because even if we're preaching to the choir, like everyone listening is in marketing, these are the kind of things you need to, these are the arguments you make and these are the ways you present, present yourself and project yourself as a marketer to the senior leadership, to your boss. Like these are the kind of things, these are the, the, the best ways to say it and share it. And it's such a, I mean, the metaphors of the oil rig and it, it being more costly to shut things down. It reminds me of like the gym metaphor, you know, because I, I hear that with SEO and with blogging, 
is it better to blog, you know, um, you know, for 24 hours straight or, you know, once one hour a week for 24 weeks, you know, or the gym, right. Better to go every day for an hour or, you know, just for 24 hours, right. For sure. It's the consistency that builds the gains. And if you do it for 24 hours straight, you're getting hurt for sure. And you're probably annoying the gym owner who's like, go home. I need to close up. Like it, you can't just do that. You can't just turn it on and be like, Ooh, we want to catch up. So let's go ahead and crank it up because this idea of like, well, let's just send out another 2 million emails to catch up. You can't, that's not how it works. You can't just, you know, swap people twice or three times as much to get top of mind. And if you really try to do it effectively, it's going to be like creating a whole new oil rig. You're going to spend so much more because you have to use different channels and all those different things. It's, it's a big eye opener. You can't, you can't skip through to that and you can't just bombard people with nine times as much. I've never heard that about the 20%. That makes total sense. Okay. You want to be a big boy? Cool. Spend like a big boy or girl, and, but you got to do it consistently over time. And that's how you get to the next level. You can't do that playing, you know, time the market games with your marketing. Yeah. So um, you're saying before about the 20%, like with the excess share of voice. Yeah. Um, so I suppose it's something I've been reading about a bit more lately. And, uh, and I suppose part of the argument is that big players actually have an unfair advantage because simply because of the brand power. Yeah. And so, and they actually have the budget too. And you'd actually spend to get further to increase your market share. But unfortunately that's where it's at for all businesses. If you want to increase your market share, you've got to spend to that level. Um, it's pretty hard to get it any other way, I suppose. I mean, the only other way for a company to do that is to, uh, to do it organically, to buy another company. Of course, yeah. that's a whole different kettle of fish. So, you know, the argument becomes uh, if you're actually having a chat to a senior executive, to a CFO, and they say, well, you know, you purchased another company, you thought they had the great product, you want to increase your market share, and you purchased another company. So why wouldn't you do that for marketing budget? Yeah. Why would you actually cut it when it's our own products? And we can actually increase market share that way by actually spending more to increase um, the brand awareness and other factors. Yeah, it's an interesting opportunity for brands because they're probably not spending on all the travel they thought they would for all these events. So now we've got some budget. What are you going to do with it? You know, do something with it to expand your 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 share of voice. Wow. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, one of my clients actually said that to me yesterday. He actually contacted me after a long time. He's one of the ones that went quiet. But uh, just after he went quiet, he won a couple of big pieces of business, one in Europe. He's based in Sydney. And he won another piece of business in Singapore. Um, and that actually got him going throughout the pandemic. Uh, of course, we're still in the pandemic, but he's got two big pieces of work and he's wow. looking to do some more activity. So you know, he's going well, but um, it's good that he hasn't completely shut down. So yeah, uh, you're right. It's important to keep on going. Yeah, for sure. How, how, do you, how do you plan? You know, everything's changing. There's no formulas. How does, how, how does doing marketing planning fit into you know, any of that? Well, I suppose I can only work with what I can work with and what I know. So yeah. um, looking at the time projections over what period of time, what needs to be taken to market, the services or product, um, how it uh, goes up against competitors, what yeah. our competitors are doing, because that's a major factor. Um, how receptive the market will be. So I try to look at going back to the marketing theory and the, and the P's and try to work out each element. 
and I build a strategy. And I suppose that the three things I really look at is uh, the target. Who is the target? Mm-hmm. Um, how are you going to position to that target? And how am I going to reach them? And I think that forms the basis of a marketing strategy. That's how I plan it out. And I know that's really high level and still kind of fluff at that point. But if you actually work out those elements, um, I think the rest, you just take it down another layer um, and you look into the details. And by the time you actually, if you can actually work out who your target is and what your position is to them and how you're going to go after them, then it actually uh, could feed, feeds into the rest of the plan and what you actually need to sketch out. That's how I do it. Yeah, okay. And to be heard, that's, I don't, wouldn't call that fluff um, necessarily because I think sometimes we get too caught up with the tactical things. We forget to ask ourselves like, who are we actually going after? Who would be the right one? Uh, instead, we just kind of go and we don't really ponder that or maybe get a little more selective than we used to be. Instead, we just kind of go. But just taking a step to even simply think, who's my target? What's my position? And how, how am I going to reach them? And that's simple. It's a great three-point question. It's awesome. Yeah, and I think the good thing book. about that is <laughs> the book. Well, uh, yeah, and I can have it on Amazon like yours. I've got to get a copy of your book. I remember last time you asked me, there were only three copies left, so I need to get it. In Australia, there's only three copies left? There were only, last time I checked, there were only three hot copies left in Australia. I might have to get the Kindle version. Jeez. (laughs) Three copies left, people. When did you, when did you? Australians listening, got to go grab that thing. And did you, you need to do an audiobook version too, or did I you do, do an audiobook version? I do. No, I, I need to. We've been talking about it. It's going to happen. For sure it's going to happen because got a microphone, love talking, and <laughs> it's a book. It, you know, so many people have been like, I'd rather just listen to that. So, Well, you've got a good talking voice. You've got a good voice, so it's actually nice to listen thanks. to. But, and I love audiobooks too. And I was going to ask you that at some point because um, – I know you wanted to, obviously, we could talk about the marketing myth, the bust, and um, uh, how I got to be where I am now. But I thought it's quite interesting going from the Marines to doing what you are now. So maybe we can discuss that at some point. Yeah, man. We're just here to hang out, chat marketing, chat military, talk whatever. Yeah, I, I think half the fun is, is, you know, talking shop, learning about people, learning about each other, having conversations and um, but yeah, going from the, the Marine Corps into, into marketing, um, you know, I was doing, I was doing, it wasn't my first job. My first job by the Marines was a, a, a traveling trainer gig. So I was like flying all over the world, teaching people how to use lasers, but that meant, and it was like something like 95% travel, but you could do that when you're like young and no family, you know, you just travel. And so I was always on a plane somewhere and I had so much free time. I thought, how, how could I use this time? And so I started picking up little freelance projects on guru.com and those kind of things. Um, and they were marketing projects and people like you to design a postcard for me or this and that. And so I just enjoyed kind of the entrepreneurial side of that. Um, and so that's how I really started getting more and more into like marketing and then eventually got a job as a, as a marketer at a company. But before that I was just kind of helping out those people doing these kind of fun side projects uh, but you yeah. didn't want to travel. You didn't want to travel anymore. Like when you got the job at the marketing company. I know. Eventually, it got to be too much travel. You can only do. So I remember one time waking up from a nap at in Heathrow Airport, not knowing what day it was, what time it was. Um, okay. Who? Where am I? <laughs> and and the, what broke it for me was um, I was supposed to fly to South Korea. I still have never been there because 
try as I might, I couldn't get any kind of comfortable seat. Like I'm not a first class person, but usually a business travel, if it's more than, you know, 15 hours, some companies will let you upgrade that. And I'm mm. um, so like, you know, like business or something. Right. And, um, my company re- declined that. Um, and so they're like, no, but it was gonna be 24 hours, a 24 hour flight. I, I guess I'm preaching the choir. Australia is pretty far too, but I just, I was like, ah, the pro- flying all the time and then being on a plane. I just, that job about a year and a half where I was like, okay, I, my, I have enough Delta miles. It's time to do something different. I know what you mean. Um, quite a few years ago, I had a job where I had to fly a lot. It was all within Australia and New Zealand. And I had to fly away every second week for about a week, most of the time. And I had little kids at the time. So in hindsight, I probably wasn't good. My, my wife was so good about it. Um, but I know what you mean, but I, I didn't have to do the long stretches that you just mentioned, like um, 24 hours. And I know like psychologically, Australians are always prepared for that because unless you're flying to New Zealand, um, <laughs> you know, quite often you're flying to England or something, yeah, that's quite the gig, 26 hours or whatever the case may be. And yeah. that's faster now. Years ago, it used to be a lot longer because you had to stop a whole bunch of different places. Yeah. You, know, you might have to stop in Singapore and then stop, let's say, in the UAE, in Dubai or something, which you often still do, like in Qatar or something. But um, years ago, flying back to Canada for me, it's like um, you know, flying from here to Hawaii to LA <laughs> and up to Alberta or something like that. But now you could just like, go from here to Vancouver in one stretch. So it's a lot easier, but yeah. And I think a lot of people think, wow, that's such a glorious job. You're always on planes and stuff, but yeah, it's not a brilliant experience. It can be a grind, you know, it can really wear on you and your body and, um, and yeah, it's not like you should drink more of those free drinks in first class or in whatever, because that's not going to help you either. (laughs) So um, eventually it added up, but it was a great, great job for a while. And, one of the highlights was this laser that we were help training people on. They, um, the national guard in the United States bought one for every state and territory, which meant, and I was like, they're basically their only employee travel uh, trainer. That meant they were sending me to, um, I got a chance to train obviously Hawaii, the Hawaiian national guard, the Alaska national guard, very interesting. And then Guam, uh, has a National Guard unit, so I got to go over there. And then uh, St. Croix in the Bahamas has oh, a National nice. Guard unit. And these, this is the highlight. I go and I stay in this little bed, at bed and breakfast before Airbnb. And, and then these guys pull up in this van, like a gov- government van, slide open the door, and they're like, hey. It was almost like one of those movies where they open the door and they're all playing music in there and they're having a party. That was it. Wow. Having a party at the National Guard. That's because like, no terrorist is like, hmm, let me attack St. Croix, right? So they're, they're having a good time, but we have a National Guard unit there. And so they're like, hey, come on in. And so I teach them the laser stuff over a couple hours. They're like, okay, let's go snorkeling. Let, let's do this. So it was just such a fun time to, uh, to do that for a while. God, that sounds great. And um, what sort of laser was that? Like a lethal yeah. laser? Is it like top secret information? Because no, no, no. It, say the- <laughs> it, was, it was interesting in that it was um, – it's this little, it's called Raman spectroscopy uh, for any of our chemical engineering or chemistry friends. It's, it's a way that you can shoot a laser at a chemical and then pick up what it, what it reflects at you um, and use that to identify what it actually is. And this was right about the time where anthrax was like a big thing or mm. the scare for it, at least like it seemed like for a while people were like, Ooh, you know, they're like 
bad guys were using that or um, people were faking it with sugar, right? And in the equipment at the time were these big yellow suitcases that were just terrible. And this is like a little handheld laser. And you'd, you'd walk up to a, like a powder on a table, you hit a button, it scans the thing for like five seconds, and then it tells you sugar on a screen. It doesn't tell you like some weird glucose structure, it just sugar in plain English. And you're like, oh, and you can brush it away, you know? And so it was like, it was really cool, but you, you teach people how to scan things. You can't scan um, dark materials. Like if it's like a, a black powder, you, you, you couldn't scan that because it would get hot. Um, oh, okay. And it also doesn't work if, if, it's, if it's wet. You can't scan um, water. Water messes it up. You have to use another um, laser, another kind of thing to scan water type stuff. So actually, no, water, water did work. There's, some, know, there's something about it, but there's different like things you would teach people about like, okay, if you're going to do it this way, you can do water, but it can't be too dilute or it won't work. But it was just, it was neat. I got to be kind of a laser geek for a while and I have to teach these guys how not to burn their eyeballs out with lasers and yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. Maybe it was like alcohol you meant when you said you couldn't do water, it couldn't do alcohol. Maybe that would wreck the alcohol. I wonder if you it know, would. It, it, was, it was dark materials and then also um, biologicals would mess it up too. Okay. So um, yeah. It's, it's funny what you said too about the anthrax thing, the anthrax period. I remember that because I did a marketing campaign. I was working for a utility here in Melbourne um, and did a campaign. It was a mail out campaign during the anthrax period. And the mail house, when they printed the material and sealed it in the plastic, had a funny smell to it. So when it went out to the market, a lot of people ran up saying, I think I've actually got an anthrax. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh God, it was the campaign from hell. So it was actually quite interesting. I, I can't see any, you know, like in my head, my first reaction, which is probably bad is like, how could I use that to get, um, you know, a better result open rate? But it's like, I can't see any positive reaction. If you make people think that the thing you're sending might harm them. I don't know. That doesn't really help your brand out too much, you know? Not at all, unless you actually send a kit alongside it with protective gear, the gloves, maybe a hazmat suit and say, open this up, even though you think it might have anthrax and you could win um, a $50 loyalty card or something like that. Right. So yeah, <laughs> have to be have to be one hell of an incentive. I feel like that's something a car dealership would do, at least in the, in the States. That's what they do. They do the, the weird, wacky stuff. They make you think it's the taxes and it's not. It's they're trying to sell a car. Um, I remember being on um, a webinar, a podcast recently, where somebody was talking about that, how they showed a mail out from a car dealership in, I can't remember the town, I think it was in Illinois. And um, it had something to do with the pandemic. And it said like, um, COVID news or COVID rebate on the outside of the envelope. Maybe you showed it to me. I'm not Did sure. I? But Maybe. Do you, do you remember seeing that? I was at COVID rebate, you know, open up and I actually had to do it about like no, I've heard special? about that though. Like, like a rebate. That's it's so ugh, the scammy, that's, scammy side of things. That's pretty low. But some, you know, you should do a podcast because somehow you got us from lasers back into marketing, which is brilliant. Oh, thank you. I just brought it around. Yeah, so, right. Uh, I mean, it's well, kind of funny how everything kind of ties in together. It all kind of loops back around. Um, I suppose it does. But um, how, like, an after the the laser gig. Um, and I know you said you were working for the company. How did you uh, start Cheshire? Like, how did it lead to that? Yeah, you know, um, I got Pardot like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years ago for the first time. 
blurs now and now the bigger the number get for a while you're like ooh, this makes me look important but then the number keeps growing and you're like oh <laughs> it, it could be, it'd be fine if it just stayed at 12 or 10 i'd be okay with that's good enough but um so when i first got part odd i was just a marketer at a company and i used it and i loved it and the results and it just it, it got me out of being an activity marketer and i was able to use roi and show that we were doing something and so i just love that experience that i I enjoyed telling other people about it. And I was a reference for Parda and I would, people were like, Oh, should I buy Marketo or HubSpot? Or I'm like, okay. And they're like, talk to Casey. He'll help you figure it out. So I talked to people and, to, and tell them how excited I was about Parda. Still am. And, and then be like, Oh, that's really exciting. And eventually some people started saying, could you help us do what you just described doing for yourself? And then it was like, okay, sure. Yeah, I wasn't even expecting that. I just wanted to tell people about it, not even selling services or anything. I'm just excited about it. And, and then organically, sort of this consulting, just trying to help other marketers out came about. And then it wasn't until when Salesforce acquired Pardot that things really started getting serious and the, the scale and amount and volume and all the different teams we've worked with now, it just really shot up through the roof that way. It's mm, fantastic. And how many years ago was that? Did you start at Cheshire then? That's a tough one, man. That, um, see, that's another oh, one of those questions. You know, it's, it's one of where, those numbers you don't know. Yeah, I think it's about five or six, honestly. But like, I was cool when it was like, well, when you say one or two, people get kind of nervous. You're like, ooh, brand new company. So that's not good. You get to three, you're like, oh, we're a startup, right? It's fun. Three to five. But after that, you're like, are we even a startup still? You know, and, but you want to still have that feel. At least it's important to me to have that feel where you're not too corporate. And, but you're still able to be nimble. You know, I don't want to ever be that established, slow company that can't move. And, um, but really being able to, to move and adapt and change. Um, but be, yet be a serious company at the same time. Well, not, I don't know, serious, a professional company at the same time, you know? Credible. I think maybe credible, credible is the word yeah. you look for. But you are, yeah. It's, well, you do use that. Like the brand uses the professionalism, credibility. Um, you know, I was listening to some, uh, Jennifer Lynn's, uh, podcast yesterday and, uh, oh, yeah. they're fantastic. So the pot out life hacks. So yeah, 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 um, totally, man. And I'm connected to a few of the people like, uh, Peter is probably one of the first ones I was having a chat to up in Ontario, um, uh, on LinkedIn. And, uh, and then we had a zoom call or something like that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it does actually fit the brand. Like you said, that's cool. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's half the point, right? Life is too short to, you know, work on, you know, boring projects or projects that don't make a difference or do work that doesn't matter and to work with people that are, you know, cranky, like don't work with people that are cranky they, unless you, unless you're cranky and you like cranky, then by all means, please do that. Um, but you know, if, if, you know, for marketers out there, it's like, you know, work with people you trust and that are smart and they know what they're talking about. And I've been super blessed because I would, you know, people like Jennifer, they know, so much more about part out than I do. Right. So it's just cool to work with people that are, you know, at the, at the top of the food chain and uh, crushing it. Yeah. Yeah. She seems very knowledgeable. So I'm going to go through the rest of our podcasts. Um, Cause every time I listen to something like from hers or from yours, I learned so much. Yeah, for sure. And like her podcast and even the part of life hacks, literally she goes, it's the opposite of this podcast, right? Like we're hanging out, chatting, telling stories, talking about lasers and she is like click by click detailed describing different aspects of Pardot and how to make it work and connected campaigns and the tech can get crazy. So it's, it's cool that she's around to do that. Sometimes if I'm doing a webinar, like I'll go 
listen to the podcast on that topic from her and just to kind of catch myself up to speed on the tech side. Mm, it sounds like quite the guru. Yeah, seriously. No. Yeah. I mean, everyone on the team too is super, super smart, super brilliant. I'm just kind of along for the ride. You know, I'm just, I'm just here. <laughs> you're very, you're very humble. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun. It's fun. I get to be on podcasts with you all day. Right. So it, it really is like a blessing, super fortunate, stoked to be where I'm at, that kind of thing, you know, just perfect mm. little setup. Yeah, well, with obviously you're very smart. Yeah, with that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That's cool. I mean, these are good questions. It, it's kind of fun, you know. That you're asking me questions too, and I always tell people they can ask me questions, but never, never takes me up on that. But it's fun because sometimes it's just more of a one-way conversation than two, and it can be much more interesting when we're both sort of like learning more at the same time. Yeah, well, I didn't want it to be one way because yeah, there was so much stuff I want to learn about your background because it's a really interesting background. Um, yeah. I thought, uh, and also the, the way you are with the crew um, and you've written the book and, um, and what I meant about the crew is like, you're very supportive um, of all the people that you come across, like whether it's your staff or, and I've seen your posts on LinkedIn where you've actually liked something or commented on something from another person about pot art or otherwise. And yeah, uh, yeah so um, you seem to be a really good person that way. Hey, <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate that, man. It just, you know, it, you know, the core values in the, at the team is kind of my core values. It's we care, we have fun, we get things done, right? So it's like those, all three of those things are important to me. It, I, it's life's too short not to care about the people you work with or just other people out there. And, but having fun too. Fun is definitely a core value. You got you to gotta have fun in what you're doing. Um, otherwise, it's boring. Value. True. Because you're in New Hampshire, right? So you're not actually, yeah. you don't actually go to an office where you see everybody because everyone's in a different spot, right? Right, right. I've got a little one. But um, haven't been there lately, for sure, with the quarantine. But a little one, and would swing by and uh, and have like a couple people there. But mostly, um, and it's more like a staff, you know, that work with me and either marketing or that kind of thing, and a bookkeeper on the checks. But everyone else, they're all remote. You know, U.S. and Canada right now. Maybe Australia one day, right? So it's like all these different places, and it's crazy. I'm like a people person, but I got a remote company. So right now, Zoom is like my life. And I remember we were talking about gym and uh, the frustrations of not being able to go, but the gyms down here yeah. in the state I'm in opened up on Monday. Have yours opened up yet? Oh, so you call it a state? Yeah, there are states in Australia. So I think, I, I think the idea is, um, you know how that turned out? Because I think technically speaking, the states were intended to be their own countries if they wanted to be. That's why there were states. Like... Um, the reason Canada has provinces is because that's a French thing. You would have a province in France. So because the French settled in Canada before the English, they ended up with provinces. And right. it was intended so that um, it, like it all be one country, you know, large one country. But with the United States, I know you had the original 13 states. Um, right. And I think that it was intended so that it could be like a country here and a country there. And this state, Australia is kind of like that. Um, even one of the states called Western Australia, there'll be way... I think they voted in a referendum a long time ago, um, maybe about 90 years ago on independence. And I think it came close. So I think back in those days, they probably could have gone independent. I don't think they're allowed to now, but that's why they have states down here too. Interesting. Yeah, there might, there, I could see there being something about it where you're right, each one, especially Texas, right? In the US, Texas is like, they're, they're our equivalent of Western Australia, it sounds like. Uh, but yeah, more more independent than just merely a, you know, uh, a province, maybe that reminds me a little bit of like a county, a county in a side of a state is like a, 
nobody really cares too much about the county, but like, you know, you have your municipal buildings for the county, maybe a, a courthouse, but county is kind of loosely drawn. People may not even be aware of the counties, um, that kind of thing versus like a state is like, oh no, you're entering the state. You're entering the state. Much more drawn lines. Yeah, it's a bit like that. I think it wasn't Texas independent for about eight years or something. I'm, I, Probably, I was, yeah. Yeah, on that audiobook I was listening to, one of the battles was the Battle of San Jacinto or Jacinto, I think you'd say okay. it in English. And I think that actually led to the independence of Texas. So I think they, yeah, were independent for a few years. That's probably why they're so independence minded. It's like, we're Texas, you know, like that sort of stuff. I think they're like, well, we've done it before. We could do it again. But then you're like, yeah, do you know how hard it is to be your own country? and not get taken over by whoever your neighbor is <laughs> like there's some work to that it's crazy yeah unless they like california i think it's california republic those used to say if california was its own country it'd be the eighth i think the eighth largest country economically in the world so that's quite a state yeah Cal- man california is our uh, our our wicked stepchild here in the u.s they, they've got so much going for it at the same time it's like Oh, it's, there's so much to California, but it, it'd be, you're right. You know, like the size and um, the shape of, you know, states like that. And also there's desert, there's mountains, there's, it, cause it goes up and down the entire Western seaboard. It, it, there's a lot to it. It's crazy. Yeah. There's a bit of everything. Yeah, man. Um, cool. 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 Let's talk about the future. Like the few, the future marketing future around the bend, getting out of court COVID and quarantine. What do you see? Is there anything coming around that you're excited about that um, you're not excited about? Any changes you kind of anticipate from the market, whether it's globally or in each country? Well, I think because of the development of AI, artificial intelligence and technology, I think that more opportunities will open up for marketers with respect to automation. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, whether or not it's... And I think it'll actually affect all different aspects of marketing, like with voice chat and recognizing voice. So um, I know that Google's working on some of those uh, services too. So the way I see it, the trends going, I think it's, I suppose what everyone else is assuming that we'll continue to amass data that um, some people feel overwhelmed by that data. And I think we'll have to sift through it, but I think that marketers will actually become smarter with, which sets of data that they need to use and what's useful because not everything is useful. And I think um, AI and technology would actually help them with that. So I think that maybe it'll present, present a few more opportunities to become more sophisticated in their marketing campaigns and to be more responsive. So that'll lead to more personalization. So there'll be hyper-personalization. I think that's what consumers are expecting anyway. Um, so even though there are concerns uh, about data and what companies are doing with the collection of data, I think a lot of consumers are feeling that it's an acceptable trade-off when it comes to um, engaging with companies. So yeah, I think that's what's going to be the future of marketing. It's more technology and AI and um, how that you know possibly can help marketers. What do you think? Well, I... I- I think you're spot on. the The challenge is now you've collected all this information, and what are you going to do with it? And I think a lot of us don't do anything with it, and it may not even be the right format. Um, so, but we we can be we can we've gotten really good lately at collecting it. You know, I think we've gotten really good at cookieing people and getting a lot of data. 
um, or data. And, uh, and then it sort of sits there. So I think leveraging that really could be, to your point, could be that, that next level. I see AI, you know, it's not Tron. It's not um, out to get us. Did you ever see that movie where the, um, there's like these female robots that, uh, what is it? Um, uh, Machina, that one. No. See that movie? I, I mean, I got to Google it now. When, when did that come out? Ex, Ex Machina. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. I think say, okay, I think. I had um, to hear someone say it too. Machina. I, yeah, I didn't know that's how you pronounce it. Ex Machina. Or, yeah, Ex Machina. I think that's yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm not. So you saw I that? I don't think I've seen it. I don't think I have. Bro, you got to see that like tonight. Okay. <laughs> get yourself a get yourself a beer, or two or three. But uh, it it's well done, and uh, seems pretty accurate. But hopefully that's a long ways away. Um, but anyways, it's, it's not. Bit, it's a bit scary, is it? Uh, it's theoretically scary, you know, which is I think can be scarier than the fake stuff um because you're like hmm this could be how it works um so it's it's a very smart movie i think too but yeah there's um for, you know people haven't seen it i don't know why you haven't seen it yet but uh you should see it and um yeah it's it's about this guy that's trying to create ai and it, it's kind of a joke the guy that's doing it he was like the founder of this conglomerate which is like a facebook google um thing that you know, a company that's both of them. And it's kind of like a Zuckerberg that's trying to create AI on his own as like this wild guy in a laboratory and he may do it. So uh, yeah. And it's all about um, that. Anyways, great, great film. But you know, I think a lot of times when people throw out AI, it's because it's gotten markety, you know, it's gotten all buzzy and spirit fingers and happy go lucky. It's, it's not artificial intelligence. It's kind of like augmented intelligence. It's, pattern matching um and 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 it's probably a good thing it's not like true true artificial intelligence but it kind of irks me just a little bit on principle that that they they kind of treat it like oh this magic machine is going to analyze your data well if your data is correct and you can't quite see the patterns it can help you find them you know and i think but to your point find those complex patterns maybe they're not so complex but if they are find them and then let's do something with it. You know, let's tie that to an ad campaign or a different kind of nurture campaign. Um, I could see that being really powerful down the road. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's worth testing when we're talking about yeah. like testing earlier on. Uh, and I suppose if we take a shorter point of view time-wise and we think about coming out of the pandemic, um, and it's hard to know when that'll be. But of course, yeah. the economy is opening up a bit, so there's going to have to be some more activity. So things have actually started to ramp up here. So I suppose it's um, in the short term, uh, companies need to be really careful with their messaging, need to be sensitive because yeah. they don't necessarily know what they're dealing with because there are some people whose work environment hasn't changed at all. They're still working for a ton, full ton. And there are other people where you know they've been furloughed yeah. Um, have lost their jobs and um, not all companies will actually have that information and they shouldn't necessarily have that but how do you treat that because it can be really insensitive or regarded as insensitive if you use the same messaging for everyone um, so I think that somehow companies will need to be mindful of that with their messaging um, and they'll have to be really careful with their measurements because um, they'll have to be nimble and responsive to the yeah. markets that actually engage with them. And 
for those others that can't or don't, then they'll have to treat them differently somehow. Yeah. I mean, it ties back into your whole message of just, you know, being intentional about change and testing it and being subtle and slow. But I think this also adds in the element of caring, you know, like being sensitive is one way of saying it, but that's almost like defensive. I think proactively, it's just the idea of caring about the people you're messaging to. This is, is this going to help them right now? Or am I just interrupting their day to try to sell them something, you know? Yeah. And I think maybe some companies were burned by that experience. I mean, when the sure. pandemic started, when everyone was sending out emails that, uh, in these unprecedented times, <laughs> oh, God. So much unprecedented, uncertain. Um, and like, I think a lot of people have actually been talking about it. The amount of companies that have never been in touch with you, then all of a sudden got in touch with you and all of a sudden cared. Um, I think the companies hopefully have learned from that experience that, yeah, you just don't communicate just for the sake of communication. For sure. Do you know about the marketoonist? Marketunist. Don't should, think so. No. You should look this guy up. You just if you just Google mar, like marketunist, like marketing cartoons, marketunist. Yeah. Um, really cool guy. Um, had him on the podcast talking about creativity, but basically he's a marketer that realized it was more fun googling um, marketunist. Uh, it was more fun drawing cartoons. Tom Fishburne. There you go. It's more fun drawing, making fun of the meetings he was in than actually being in the meetings he was in. So he eventually went full-time cartoon and he, and he draws this, this regular cartoon. And you reminded me of one of his um, COVID ones. Cause it was like this old lady was looking at a computer. She, she's talking to her husband. She's like, Oh, look, um, another brand reaching out, telling us they, that they care about us that we haven't seen in like, you know, three years, you know, oh, oh, look at all the brands that care about us that we didn't even know about, right? Coming out of the woodwork and now you know that you're on their mailing list. It was just like, ugh. By the way, that didn't sound funny at all, but he's really a funny guy. These cartoons are like spot on. You're like, oh, yeah, totally. I love cartoons. Um, so I'll definitely look them up. It's funny how you bring up that point, but it makes me wonder, what were those companies thinking? Were they thinking, yeah. oh, something's happened. Do we have to communicate? I mean, I'm wondering whether or not that initiative came up from the very top, like did the senior executive say to marketing, you have to go out to the market and acknowledge this or say something to them or was it marketing that came up with it? I suppose it was actually quite a mix, but it's, it's yeah. funny how it happened. It was so common. <laughs> it kind of makes you want to do like a, one of those crime shows where you see one of these offenders who sends a terrible email and you like, somehow reach out to them like we're with the uh, terrible marketing crimes division um can you mean like police police tape around the area yeah right police tape around their <laughs> building um and then you're like uh put the light the light on them and you're like can you please tell me uh what was going on in your mind around the time of 13 june 2020 what were you thinking and try to understand because you're right or maybe they weren't thinking you know, maybe that's it, but you're right. If, if the, e especially the emails that sound like they're written by a presidential speech writer, you know, kind of high and mighty and preachy and you're like, ugh, why would you, why would you send that? Next time call me and I'll talk you out of it. Like it's horrible. That sounds like it'd be a perfect Saturday night live skit, what you just described. So you should write that skit for them. But that's sure. why I suspect quite often it was actually the senior executives mm. who had panicked and thought, oh, we have to say something. Oh my God, this is terrible. Um, we have to get marketing to send them emails with this message, blah, blah, blah. So right. uh, I think that that probably in a lot of cases, that's what happened.
Yeah. And a lot of people should probably shut their mouths because they're not really that important. Like at that particular time, like we don't, we don't care about your, you know, are you helping? Are you part of the situation? Like when I got an email from Delta, I'm like, okay, I need to know what you're up to. Thanks for letting me know where all my credits are now for all the flights I had to cancel. But like people that aren't involved, you know, we don't need to hear. There was a commercial in the, in the States for toilet paper, right? First of all, why are you advertising? I know everyone's buying toilet paper. There's not enough toilet paper that your advertising matters right now. Just take the free revenue and go about your day. But they're at, it was like Charmin or someone and they're, they're, it was one of those like the soft music and they're like, we're all in this together, unprecedented oh. times. Like you're freaking toilet paper, okay? Stop it. You're, you're not a moral leader of the country, toilet paper people, you know? <laughs> You wipe my butt and I appreciate it. Don't get me wrong, but like, that's about it. So uh, I was just like, I don't need to hear, but it also, it makes noise when, when you actually want to be hearing about from the real people, like, you know, what should we be hearing about? Not you save some airways for someone else. Yeah. It's funny. It's almost like that marketing budget just had to be spent on something, but you're right. Essential, essential item is like, um, please go down to the supermarket and panic buy our toilet paper. Right. <laughs> they should have actually, if you came up with something like that, at least it'd be comical. I know yeah. it, it might be verging on unethical, but almost right. be like kind of funny. Like um, uh, we, our toilet paper is the best panic bought toilet paper. You know, yeah. you can almost have fun with it. But um, yeah, I love it. Even for the big brands who came up with their messages and yeah, like the soft piano music and mm-hmm. And that it just, yeah, it comes up so preachy and I think it's yeah. a waste of money. It's a waste of money. And I think it a is. lot of people see through it and I'd love to see the, the qual research or the research they do on those and the feedback and say, well, what did the market think of this? Because if it was people like me who was giving some responses to the research, it'd be brutal. Yeah. I kind of wish I had the, the moral authority to like reach out to these people and they, they somehow felt safe and secure. Maybe if you paid them like, okay, we're going to pay you a thousand dollars, someone else's money, but we're going to pay you a thousand dollars to be completely honest with us. That might actually be a cool book too, like marketing disasters. And then you go and you find out, you know, what happened. I would love that. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, yeah, well, maybe I have to think about that one. Have you got another book planned or are you going to mellow out on the book for a while? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm really thinking about, um, I really like, like the path, like the CMO thing. So like, like the path to CMO, but also what does it take? And maybe not from a tactical sense, but the mindset of a CMO or, or just not even CMO, like a marketing leader, what, what should you be thinking about? And on the podcast, we always ask people what kind of advice they would give. So I think it might be cool to put it all together and just share it with people kind of thought process they could try to grow into in order to get to those roles. I've been reading a few articles and blogs about the position of the CMO and how some people feel that it's being disenfranchised or that it's being mm. marginalized. And I think some, in some corporations, CMOs are being seen as less important. And I think maybe that has to do with like a few years ago, how marketing is always trying to reinvent itself and some CMOs are becoming chief revenue officers or trying to be more relevant. They're maybe trying to speak more coherent financial language and trying to quantify right. what they're doing. But I suppose like CFOs do want to see that. 
So um, does it have something to do with that when you're thinking about the CMO thing or is it because of that or was it just had nothing to more do for that? marketers, right? Because I've got into coaching lately. I've coached a few people. It's just like really amazing, you know, like young marketers that start their career and you're just like, wow, it's an honor to be on the phone with them. They think it's an honor to be on the phone with me. And I'm just sort of talking them through your thought process and next steps and whatever their goals are. You know, I don't care. Whatever your goal is, I care about that. Uh, but like, I'm not like someone's dad where it's like, well, I really need you to go, go do this. You know, it's like, it's, I've really enjoyed the whole coaching thing. Um, mm -hmm. And so it kind of more ties into coaching marketers about how to, how to, uh, how to get to that role. In my mind though, before you brought that up, I kind of take the CMO, CMO role for granted it's like a no brain. It's the only role that other than CEO that sort of spans all space and time of the entire customer experience. You could argue finance does too, but only in a tracking sense, they don't actually necessarily make things happen in each, but like marketing touches on everything, which is why it's kind of hard to put it in a box or make a stand in the corner. Um, it It's too big. It's too much. It's like being the president or something of a country. It's just, there's, too much responsibility. So um, there's a lot to it. So rather than being marginalized, it's like, this is, it's so critical. The CEO, CEO is probably in the past, that was most of their job, you know? And so now it's in this role in the marketing world. I don't know. It just seems, yeah, that, that could be part of it. I haven't really fleshed it out, but or fleshed yeah. it out. Yeah. It's funny how you say that about um, the CMO experience and touching every aspect of the customer journey and every part of, the interaction, you know, inside yeah. and outside, you know. Um, and I think I've read too that um, very few CMOs make it to CEO level. Like quite often the CEO mm. will come from the finance will be the CFO, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that maybe to the boards and the shareholders, they sort of feel like uh, the numbers man is still, or the numbers woman is still the person who can actually run uh, a company best because they are focused on the financials and the health of the business in terms of revenue. Um, maybe that has to do with it. You know what? That'd be a great question. It'd be great to know what size company that stat holds true for, but it'd also be great to know why, you know? And, and I guess in some sense, some CEOs, are they trying to grow things or are they just trying to, you know, hone in on profit margin, in which case you're right they're probably the best bet for that. You just want to cut costs and whatnot. But if you want to grow, I could see throwing a VP of sales or a VP of marketing to try to grow the brand. Um, that'd be interesting. But yeah, I wonder, I wonder about that. Companies that pick, you know, who you pick and what their background is, operations or sales or whatever it is, that kind of is reflected in the way that they're going to get to the goals of the company is through that mechanism. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. But um, with the clients that you've worked with, I suppose mostly you deal with uh, the senior marketers rather than uh, finance and the CEO, correct? Yeah, yeah. Marketers of all, all shapes and sizes. Super junior marketer, super senior marketer, the whole range in there. N not a lot of too many other people. Some sales, some IT. A lot of IT people hold the keys to the, the tech. Um, so, but mostly marketers, yeah. Okay, oh, interesting. Well, like that's interesting. You know what else is interesting? You. And my question now, if you know it's coming up, who are you? Like, who are you? I know you're in Australia. You're in Melbourne. Very good. And uh, <laughs> yeah, like, take us back. Can you take us back in the day? Um, like little Brent, 
What was it like growing up? Did you grow up in Australia? And what did you want to be when you were growing up? And all that jazz. Um, didn't grow up in Australia. Uh, I wanted to be, I had lots of jobs in mind when I was a kid, like uh, out of space, astronaut, cop, yep. fireman, musician, which is the one I finally settled on. I've grown up in a lot of different places. Um, I was born in Trinidad and Tobago. In no the way. But I, yeah, I only lived there for four years, but okay. I was born in Port of Spain. And so when I was little, my dad wanted to go to uni in Montreal. So our family moved up to Montreal, lived there for a few years, about Do six Do you remember years. anything from Trinidad? Yeah, I've been back as an adult too. So I remember a few things, but um, uh, like what sort of stuff? I like it's, it's mountainous. Obviously, it's a small island. It's mountainous. It's yeah. quite tropical. It's really hot really hot but do you remember like, like being a four-year-old there do you have any like vague memories of it or uh left like three days after my fourth birthday so i have a few memories like okay. ones before that it mostly has to do with stuff of being at my grandparents house because okay. when mom when my parents mom dad like went to work they would drop me off at my grandparents place so i remember nice. that house those are where my memories are of, interesting so. and then yeah. up to montreal after that I'm to Montreal. Um, wow. So it was quite interesting because I was brought up in a French section of Montreal. It's mostly French, but there are like English suburbs. Um, so yeah, went from just speaking English to speaking French and then reading, writing French. So it's kind of did a crossover where I started with English, went on to French, did all French and only learned to read and write English when I went out to Edmonton um, at the age of nine. So Edmonton, Alberta. So I lived there as a teenager. Um, wow. and then after high school, now that's isolated went, though, right? Edmonton, that's like a little nowhere oiling, oil and gas type thing and coal. Yeah, and it's the most Northern major city in North America. I think okay. uh, like the population is like a million. So that counts as a major city, but it's like in the middle of nowhere. So got it. What, wait, got what were your parents, what, what were they doing? That was like causing you guys to move all the time. Were they spies? <laughs> most people assume that or yeah. like military if there were spies they're really good because they never told me right uh, that's almost like um Stuart copeland of the police the drummer um yes yeah. father was the head of the cia in the middle east and he didn't find out until like he was 16 years old i thought that's pretty good <laughs> yeah it's pretty good yeah so i still haven't found out no my father wanted to study uh counting at university in montreal and that's okay. why he went up there um and because my parents couldn't speak French fluently, they decided to move out to an English-speaking part of the country. So a those lot French of people, get a little crazy, huh? You, you can't you can't speak the uh, you know parlay in our on our Francois. Then we're gonna. It's a little bit better now, I think. But I, I could imagine back in the day it was. It's a lot better now, but back yeah. in the day there was a period where they call it the. Um, the English exodus. So from 1969 to 79, people actually streamed out of Quebec <laughs> and went to English speaking parts of Canada because right. um, they are, the French, Quebec was trying to find its way. And right. um, I must admit, I have some sympathies for, for the way <laughs> things went. I almost like I have a foot in each camp, one like sure. in the English camp, one in the French camp. So I can understand it, but it, it was a bit rough that way. But we went out to English Canada. My we had some family out in Edmonton, but my nice. father loved the Rockies. Like the Rockies oh, yeah. are about a four hour drive from Edmonton and the Rockies are beautiful. So um, my dad really loved them. So that's why we went out there. So I did high school there. And after that, I wanted to be a musician. 
and I just wanted to play the guitar. Just that's all I wanted to do. Didn't want to go to rock college star. or university. <laughs> rock star. Because uh, I had hair then and long hair. So I just went to like Europe. super long hair. Do you have a photo? You you should make that your like your LinkedIn profile is your like super I, long hair. <laughs> so long that when my hair was wet, it would reach to the middle of my back. I had curly hair, but um yeah, that's how long it was. It was ridiculous. Like my wedding photos are like that too. So it's funny. So yeah, I should actually put it up on my LinkedIn photo, but I want people to connect with me, not to be repulsed. So uh, like, okay. Uh, yeah, or just you no, know, no. maybe it's your background like rock star, you know, it shows like dot dot dot. This is me now. <laughs> At least I didn't have a headband. But um Right. So, so I went to Europe um and I bummed around there a couple of years and I was thinking I was trying to get into the music scene there but i didn't i mean i was just all over the place so it's kind of like the beatles long and winding road so yeah. i was meandering throughout europe met an australian girl in london um traveled on a bit with her traveled back to canada and the u.s with her came down to australia that's how i ended up in melbourne because she had been living in melbourne she's from a small town in the state of victoria so um, and what happened then was that I got into, I'd actually been working in an advertising agency in London for a really short stint. Not that it meant anything to me, but I did got you go into to, Did you go to school at any point in that? High school? I mean like university? Yeah. I, I, went to, I went to university here, here in Australia. So Okay, so that hadn't um, happened yet. You're just being a rock star, just kind of, by the way, following a significant yeah. other around, we, I think like 90% of people can relate to that maybe not globally as much as you did but like that's awesome yeah it was fun i think i wouldn't have swapped it for the world it's yeah like, i would do it all again um and i love spending time in europe um yeah. i don't get there much but i love europe um and yeah so i finally got into advertising here um and i was doing media um back in the old like old traditional like buying media television ads stuff like that yeah. And then I came up against, I remember seeing this in one of your other podcasts. Someone said like uh, she was coming up against um, being able to get senior positions because yeah. she didn't have a degree. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of like that for me. Um, so I thought like some people are saying to me, you're going to struggle to get really senior roles unless you have a degree. So I did my degree here. Uh, I did, yeah, marketing degree. And then after that, I went into more mainstream marketing instead of advertising. So I was working for, corporations big corporations sometimes small uh, sometimes for agencies too so i spent half the time with agencies right. and i was doing different types of marketing and i first ran into marketing automation back in 2013 when i was working for an agency there was a marketo reseller okay. and also i was happened to be the salesforce admin it was just thrown at me but i liked it and um, but then i took another like i said about the long and winding road I started working for a LinkedIn social selling agency that was based in Sydney and they needed somebody in Melbourne. And so, huh. yeah, they hired me for that. So I did LinkedIn for a few years. And then what happened early last year is that I had an ex LinkedIn client to go to a huge American software company called Turnitin. They do contract cheating software, plagiarism okay. software. Yeah. So they do a lot of stuff for universities and they already had Podot. She didn't like Podot, so she wanted no. me to come. She thought <laughs> she's very much married to HubSpot. Um, no. So, <laughs> yeah, she's on the dark side. Yes. Uh, so she asked me to come in and help her with her Podot instance and do the nurture campaigns, engagement. Well, she, and she wasn't else. trying to get rid of it. You were helping her with the. 
I'll put her in music. Oh, she didn't she's want to she, migrate off of it, you know. No, no, she didn't want to touch it. So she, Smart. we, they had it. Uh, want to stay with it, but she didn't want to touch it. She asked me to come in, um, did some training, and just worked on that. And that's how I actually got into pod art. And ever since then, I got my certifications. Yeah. And then I was actually freelancing to companies directly or agencies and doing some pod art and doing some marketo. So. Um, here Sweet. I am now. So I yeah. quite like it. I was already working from home for quite a while. I've been working from home since 2014. So the whole pandemic thing didn't thing, change things for me. Right. Um, so that was all quite normal. And yeah, so some of my, most of my clients are actually in Sydney, but um, I was like looking to work with businesses in North America and Europe too. Yeah. Because um, I still speak French, but I don't have any French clients. So uh, yeah, so that's but what now I'm you speak. To be clear, you speak Canadian French, right? Yeah. Have you talked Canadian to any people French. from France and then bounced well, your French off them? Uh, funnily enough, because most of the French people here in Australia are actually from France, my accent has modified a bit, so I don't <laughs> sound like I came off the last boat. Because for them, it's funny. I went to France a couple of years ago, and. French Canadians are often subconscious about that because in France, they don't really like the accent. It's kind of like the way the English feel about an Australian accent. It's kind of like grates on their nerves. And they well, how the English really, feel. Yeah, how the English in England feel about... Because Americans think Australian. it's freaking fantastic. Right? <laughs> I know. I just, it's, it's actually quite strange. But the English don't. They don't. They're, they're kind of like perturbed no. by it. They're like, oh, what an aberration of our... A proper it's, British accent, yeah. And they're like, yeah, they they kind of feel like that's so colonial. Well, it's it's a mishmash. Colonial, oh god, <laughs> I could see them. Oh, you're just one of those colonies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, it's so it's a bit like that. So you're right, the the French, because um, because the French encounter is very isolated, and um, it doesn't uh, evolve as much as the French in France, even though in France they have so many English words. So, you really? know, like they, they say stop it, like um, to stop. Interesting. And then uh, the weekend, <laughs> I'm thinking why? And, you know, like, so we don't do that as much in Canada, I don't think, but it's been a while since I've been to Quebec. And that's why I said to you that time, I'm a Habs fan. I actually like the Ottawa Senators, but I like the Habs too. But I remember you said you're a Bruins fan. Oh, and you're in sure. New Hampshire, And you're in New Hampshire. So yeah, that's the closest team. Do you ever yeah, go Bo down to Boston, New England. Yeah, that's our, yeah. That's our team. Um, yeah, you know, I, we were the family trip up to Montreal, um, before all this, I think it was even just last, oh, it was like December or November. It was awesome, man. We, I think I, had I ever been, I don't think I'd even been too. I've been to it's all the pretty places. cold. What's that? You've been all over the, it would have been pretty cold in November, December. It was cold. It was really cold. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, we went there and we just drove up because not instead of flying, we just drove from New Hampshire up. It was a fun little family trip, you know, kids in the back. And we ended up seeing a couple things. There was like a Cirque du Soleil circus show in the arena. Um, is, those would be the Habs, right? Would be the ones that were from there? Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. You, yeah. So we were in their arena for sure. And then um, we also, there was um, uh, a Vincent uh, Van Gogh like a exhibit where you could actually, um, was it Van Gogh? Or is Monet? Um, yeah, I think it's Van Gogh. But you can get into the art. So it's projected all around you. So when you walk in this gigantic room, all the art is around you and you're in the painting. 
Well, I would have liked that. Are you a Van Gogh fan or you just went because of the, the way they're projecting it? My wife is huge into art. So we we're just like, yeah, sure. Let's do this. Um, and we made it happen. But yeah, yeah. I really liked Mon Montreal. Um, interesting. It, it definitely felt like a different country, whereas some other places in Canada maybe feel just like you're in the States with a few you know, changes. It felt like a different country and people would talk to you in French and you'd, you'd hear the bonjours and the, the different things. I actually liked that because it made me feel like I was in France or somewhere else where it was a different culture. It's funny how people have different perceptions because you're right. It does feel like a different country. And when the French from France come over to Montreal or anywhere in Quebec, they say, wow, this is just like America or North America. <laughs> they, they feel like it's totally different to them. So it's got a, it's just a hybrid of everything, yeah. I suppose. Um, how did you go with the French? Do you know any, or does your wife know any, or? She does. She, okay. yeah, she studied, I mean, I'm a Spanish guy, bring the bachata on, like it, it so yeah, I'm no help, but I can, I can be the guy that doesn't know anything. I just know enough to be polite and that's all I can do. Um, but yeah, I, I can sing a little bonjour and uh, merci around here left and right, but she was like able to really do a lot. And we, we did a trip to, um, to Paris, uh, spoke at one of the Salesforce, the world tours over there. Oh, um, okay. French, French touch dreaming it was such an honor to speak there. And um, first time in, in Paris. And I think in the U S there's a sort of a connotation. You think of like, Oh, the French are rude and the French are this. And I didn't, I didn't really experience that. Maybe I smiled enough. I don't know. But like, I, I just, I experienced that their culture was all about, um, food, all about wine, and all about like culture and living and enjoying life. And nowhere in that sentence is like fast service or, or you know, friendly service. But people were friendly and nice, but it wasn't a priority. Priority is like sit here, drink your wine, look at the street, you know, and enjoy life. Um, yeah, I love that about France. And I think yeah. like even in, I don't know if you experience this, but even in a work situation, you know how we do this in Australia too. Sometimes you eat lunch at your desk, right? In a corporate environment, you just grab it out and you're eating, you're still on your computer. That's frowned upon in France. It's oh like yeah. Lunch, lunch is for lunch. You go out, you actually eat, you speak to your friends, your colleagues, peers, whatever, and you actually have um, a proper environment for eating. So yeah, I quite like that. And yeah, I think it's true. They get an unfair label about being rude. I think it's more so the fact that quite often people will go over there and assume that everyone speaks English so they won't make the attempt at speaking like any French at all. But even if you just learned a few words, yeah. then that's okay. That's all, that's all it takes. Because I think, well, you made the effort. Because when I was over there and I can speak French, as soon as I, you know, you'd be in a lineup queue of people and people speaking to the one who's helping them in English and then you go up in French, they're kind of like stunned. It's like, oh, wow, it's someone <laughs> who's actually speaking French to me. So as because of that, I'd get like really good service. So uh, yeah, I love France, but I think Italy is my favorite country in the world. So is uh, it? I, yeah, and, uh, I'd love to live in Northern Italy. Uh, so, what part Northern Italy? Well, I love Bologna. I love Milan, um, but Bologna is great. It's supposed to be the culinary. Okay, so like of kind Italy. of north, not like tippy tippy Northern Italy, not way in the Alps area or. No, yeah, not quite in the Alps area. I wouldn't mind living there too, but I suppose I think of it. Oh, from I see. A You're right. I'm sorry. Milan is quite up there. Yeah, it is up there, but still, yeah, you can see the mountains too. But um, it's got a lot of economic activity. That's the economic engine of Italy. So if you're thinking about work, that's a good place to be. 
Um, but Bologna is not too far. You can actually hop on a train and be there like in no time. It's like, I don't know, an hour or something like that. So I've had a chance to go there a couple of times and we did a honeymoon there uh, in, in Italy, just drove all over the place. And you drove, um, that's brave. Yeah. <laughs> Newlyweds and your husband, you know, and so here I am driving and she's got the map and she's over there and were we on a different side? No, different side of the road, but no, or worry. Yeah, no, you would have been. Hold on. No, hold on. No, I think we're no, right. No, no, no. It's the right. It's the same. It's only in England. Right? Yeah, you're right, right. So it, it was like that, but you're right. It's fast. It's different. And yeah. And so that was quite the experience, but I, I enjoyed it. And, but we, one of my highlights was going up to the Aviano area, like right near the border where all the mountains are and the, the Alps. And oh, I think I know of the area, but I don't think I've been through there. I've only taken, like, I've taken a train from down from, we've cut through for like from Austria, but okay. um, yeah, I don't think I've stopped over in the Aviano area, but God, Italy is just gorgeous. And I love history. And, right. you know, like you're in Rome and you're walking around, you see something and it's like 2000 years old. I think that is so cool. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, Col oh, the totally. Colosseum is my favorite building. It's just a gorgeous building. It's amazing. It still stands. It's, it's quite, quite interesting. Um, yeah. Cause it's been ravaged throughout the years and, and it survived two world wars. So thank God for that. Right. No one decided to blow it up. Um, I'm glad they didn't. Um, yeah. I just Googled the, uh, the Aviano area. There's, there's a little air base there, a little U S air base, but it, there's this little windy road. People, you, if you look it up on Google maps, there's a little windy road up to this tiny little ski town of Piancovallo. And, um, I just remember driving that a couple of times and just for me, mountains are always fascinating and New Hampshire, we have Hills. So to your point about the Rockies or, or like a serious white capped mountain range. Um, I remember being in that area and just, I can't help but look over to the right and just see these enormous things, you know, jutting into the sky. It was crazy. It's Aviano is like very much almost like probably sea level really. So the, the, the vertical gain is just, intense and i just it's so neat to look over at these huge behemoths and just stare and wonder and i always instantly want to climb it like ooh, what's the top like let's go to the top it's funny because i remember you said um you're training for kilimanjaro but yeah. you've actually climbed five or six mountains already so if the did you grow up in new hampshire surrounded by hills but what was it like what was the first mountain you thought yeah i've got to climb that it was mount rainier in washington Oh, gorgeous. Yeah, okay. Have you seen that one? Yeah. Yeah, I have. You can only get it on a good day, right? If it's raining in Seattle, which is every day, then you can't see it. But the one day it's not, it surprises you. You're just, just sort of driving. You're like, what, what, what is that thing? And you, it doesn't look real. It looks like it's fake. Or, um, Yeah, so I saw that. I was visiting my parents when they lived out there for a day or two. And um, I was like, what is that like? And could I climb that? And I did it for a fundraiser. And that was hard. And that was like... Whew, it was hard, but it was amazing to be at the top of that and look down. Did you have to do a lot of training for it in the lead up though? Yeah, I trained a bunch for that and it was still hard. So it's like, whew, what's, what's Kilimanjaro going to be like? Another 5K on top of that. But yeah, I trained really, really hard with a trainer and squats it all over the place and it was still a butt kicker. So, um, but it was, oh. it was neat. The high altitude and everything, I just really enjoyed it. Okay, so after Mount Rainier, what did you tackle next? Yeah, that, that 
is kind of like tackling a family. And so I haven't really tackled anything yet. So the next thing after that would be Kilimanjaro would be the next thing. Okay. I remember you said, um, or we chatting once about, yeah, going over to, to Kilimanjaro. I've actually got to have a knee operation in a couple of weeks. I have a uh, torn meniscus. Oh, geez. Torn anyway, it needs to be fixed. It's, I was actually How'd you exercising tear at home. How? Yeah. Uh, well, I was exercising at home. I was using one of the spare rooms since the gyms were closed down. Right. And I did a, a stupid move where I rolled forward to try to do some sort of exercise. And I actually tore the outside of my left knee. And that was kind of healing. But I think it weakened the entire knee. So about a week ago, week and a half, I just stepped outside the house sideways and the knee slipped. Apparently the meniscus tore. Um, and I think it's because it was not protected on the left side by the recuperating muscle I had torn on the left knee. Jeez, and that's beast. how I did it. Yeah. So apparently that's how it happens. And I was worried because I love deadlifting at the gym. And I thought, well, my deadlifting days are over. But right. the doctor, the surgeon said to me, look, you know, you start off easy and we might actually get you back there. So we'll see what happens. Oh, but cool. If it's a write-off, it's a write-off. A few years ago, I tore my right Achilles heel partially because I was doing Taekwondo. Bro, you're tearing stuff. <laughs> you're like, you're beast mode over here. What are you, how'd you tear that? Taekwondo. I was doing Taekwondo because my kids got into Taekwondo and I had a friend who said, look, I did it when I was 17, 18. I only got to yellow belt. I have some unfinished business, but I don't want to go do it by myself. Will you go with me? And he just asked me first because he knew I would say yes. <laughs> so I went and I did Taekwondo for a few years. And then I was actually doing some fighting training. And hmm. I kept on, and then Taekwondo, as you know, like you're always bouncing on your toes ready to actually yeah. kick someone, right? Kick um, them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> as you do, it's so social. Uh, and apparently just, I did one too many bounces and I just tore, um, the center I was going to is actually quite good. Like some of the Olympic athletes were training there. Oh, geez. And so it was pretty intensive training. Not that I was, I wasn't training for the Olympics. I was training with them. That's all. Yeah. And so it partially tore, not the whole thing. So it didn't roll up, but it just partially tore. It was excruciating. So I went to Oof. the hospital to fix that up. And they said, the way that you're tied, your tendons tied down the bottom of your foot, you're not designed to do Taekwondo. But of course, you'd never know until something like that happened. Did they so, have to look um, inside it or could so they just look at mine and tell me like, yeah, <laughs> maybe not lasering. It wouldn't help. Maybe MRI. I don't know. But, yeah. Uh, but um, that's what happened. And then that was pretty much the end of my Taekwondo days. I think I did another year and I got to my second Dan, but that was it. I was never the, quite the same again. So I'm hoping it's not quite like that. I'm hoping that you got, you got your belt, man. That's cool. You get your second degree. Yeah. Yeah, from a few years ago, so I'm sure how nimble I'd be actually using it. But I love martial arts. I did kung yeah. fu when I was a teenager. So kung the whole fu? thing, like, yeah, I had the, nice. like it was white white crane kung fu. So I'm a huge fan of um, uh, Bruce Lee. Of course, everyone loves yeah. Bruce Lee. When I went to Seattle, I went to visit his grave. It's quite sad because like oh, it's Brandon, in Seattle. It's in Seattle. Um, it's in Seattle, and of course, Brandon, his son, is right next to him, and Jimi Hendrix because. Jimi Hendrix's grave is also in Seattle. So I went to visit that too. I love Seattle. That's my favorite American city. Really? Yeah. It's, uh, I know what you mean about the rain, but the rain doesn't bother me. And I think yeah. because growing up in Edmonton, of course, our American television would be broadcast in from Spokane. Washington, yeah. All places. So you kind of get to, I got to know a bit of stuff about Washington. 
Um, and so, you know, eventually went down to Seattle and traveled down. But yeah, I love Washington State. And yeah, Seattle is a great city. It is great. No, that's crazy. So you're, you're a wild guy. You're, you'd be good to have, you know, go in a bar fight, you know. So I like to, I like to know who I'm with. So I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy's, you know, this one guy's nine feet tall. You can be with me. You, you got your, you got your Taekwondo and your Kung Fu. Yep. Yep. Over here. So you, you just, you know, next time we're at Dreamforce or something, you know, people are like, Hey, what are you guys doing? You're like, uh, you don't, we're good. We're good. You don't want to met. I, I hear stories about like people accidentally trying to pick a fight with like a UFC fighter in a bar and they don't realize who they're and all their friends are like, no, 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 <laughs> like, you, no, you want to leave that guy alone. That's <laughs> uh, quite funny. Maybe I can go in as a bodyguard, but, um, there you go. I all, yeah, I also like uh, I also want to do Krav Maga, but that was during my Taekwondo days, and I didn't, I couldn't do both. You know, Krav oh, okay. Maga, right? Yeah. yeah. So you never got a chance yeah. to do that. That would be fun. I did a little bit of it, so I did a few months of it, and that was it. Uh, but I really love that. That's how about jujitsu? Any of that? I've never. I did a little bit of jujitsu. You mean Brazilian? Brazilian, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, the only um, one really. <laughs> uh, I didn't like it as much because, of course, so much of it is mat work. Yeah. And um, it's contrary to the philosophy of some of the other martial arts, which is if you get into trouble, do a quick hit to get out of there. Whereas yeah. Brazilian BJJ, it's like you're quite involved. You're on the mat. You got to do the pinning and all stuff. So it's very handy in case you end up on the ground. On the ground, but, yeah. But the goal should be never. <laughs> Not to get ground. on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, avoid getting on the ground. So yeah, the um, spacing. I, I hear you on that. You and I mean the style that I that I did was um, uh, Weichi Ru, which is like a Japanese Okinawan, um, basically like Karate Kid, like Mr. Miyagi. Oh, like our cool. style. So yeah, like Weichi Ru done right, you're Mr. Miyagi, and it's it's very grounded. Um, and then you're just doing you know, the wax on, wax off, legit. That's like straight out of us. Not that they do that. And we also don't do the flying front kick, but, um, uh, but yeah, very much Mr. Miyagi. And uh, yeah, I remember it just being like all about, it's not, yeah. If you get, it's almost like a turtle. You get them on their back. Like if you got a Weichi Ru person on the ground, you're kind of like, what do I do? So that's where a little, little that BJJ might come in handy, but you're right. You, you want to have the distance and, and stay away and knock it on the ground. Um, I, yeah. it's kind of you can see like a little bit of each different thing is kind of fun to collect yeah you're right uh, one of my teachers when i was doing the taekwondo actually had a black belt in seven disciplines so he was collecting things from different yeah. disciplines and art so so that's quite cool and he could teach a lot of things but um he like he taught me how to choke somebody he said i know this is going to be uncomfortable but you really don't know you can't learn how to choke someone unless you can be choked yourself. So he said, I'm going to make you pass out. Sure. That's okay. And that's such a scary concept. So he puts his arm around my neck and I tell him, okay. And so he choked me until I passed out. Um, and then he asked me to do it to him. And it's until you passed out. <laughs> yeah. Until yeah, this guy. Out. So he didn't, he didn't even he didn't tap. He's me. like, no, no. So you, he, now you know what I like to sleep. <laughs> yeah he wanted me to experience it because then he wanted me to do the same thing to him i thought oh my god <laughs> so did you make him pass out i did actually because wow he told me to <laughs> so he was he was my teacher my sensei uh we don't say sensei in taekwondo but yeah right right <laughs> yeah, he was my teacher so i did it so yeah it's quite fun you know it's funny i took a couple taekwondo lessons um and 
I, ne- I never told um, the guy, because I just wanted to experience, I never told the guy I had done karate before, you know, in a different style, right? And I'd done it all growing up, college, everything. Um, I just came in was like i don't be treated any differently i'm just gonna do this i kept getting in trouble for kicking too hard he's yeah he's like no 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 no, don't kick so don't kick so but like in the way she like the the kicks you're hard the the punch is like everything's so grounded you're just like swack but it's not as flexible maybe as like a taekwondo kick um and it's different you know you're you're straight on versus the side and and i just remember him being like no 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 don't do that like we'll work to that we'll work to that you know it's crazy did you tell him afterwards or did you not tell him at all? No, uh, I did it for like a, like a month or two just to try it out. Um, but it's different. It's different when you're used to standing one way, you gotta stand a different way, hold your hand in a different place. And I did like uh, Muay Thai though. That was fun doing some. You know, oh yeah. That's pretty brutal. Yeah. Well not never fought, never fought like just learning the training and you know, that kind of thing. It's so interesting. Yeah, because the kick comes in from the hip, like with the straight legs. So yeah. I've seen a few of those movies and yeah, it looks like the way they train those Thai little boys to fight like that. That's, that's pretty hardcore. Like that's why people go to Thailand. But I, have you been to Thailand? No, I haven't. You got to go to Thailand when this thing is all said. No, but like Thailand's amazing. The people are actually really friendly and they smile a lot, which is like a thing. And I'm cool with that because that means you're cool. I'm cool. Let's smile. Very friendly. And the, the conversion rate on most money is amazing there. Um, but then you have the occasional rude tourists, right, who should get what comes to them. And they'll be in some, some non-touristy city or some beach somewhere and get intoxicated and then maybe pick a fight with a local. Bad idea. Everyone's Muay Thai there, right? <laughs> or, so it's like you – like – I wouldn't even, no one should like that. They've been doing that since they were two. So, um, and then you hear stories of like, they got, you know, beat up and rightly so for being rude. Yeah. yeah. And well, it's in their DNA, if they grew up with it, just like, I suppose, you know, karate is taught in Japan and Taekwondo and maybe, I don't know, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. It no, might not be. I'm... I could just be stereotyping, but like, I think it's pretty common that, you know, if you, if you run into someone, some older gentleman, maybe just think twice <laughs> yeah yeah your odds aren't so good <laughs> right it's funny no the only place in asia i've been to is singapore so which is a pity because i'd love to go to there's so many other countries i'd love to go to japan i yeah. love japanese culture so oh yeah uh, yeah it looks gorgeous but it sounds like you've been to quite a few countries so for sure um yeah singapore is fantastic with the um the the canal with the lights on either side and the restaurants along there and they've got chili crab and all that kind of Oh it's, God, uh, that was so messy. I, oh yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so messy. It's, it's, maybe it's a bit like the experience of eating ribs in the U.S., which I haven't experienced yet, but I think I have what? to have, do that at some point. Yeah, yes. you know, you put the 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 napkin or the serviette in your shirt so you don't get all the barbecue sauce on you, and you just tackle the ribs. I've got to do that one day. Absolutely. You know, one of the best places I ever had ribs was in Kansas. It's like oh, outside okay. of Kansas City, and um, and it wasn't even a Russian. It was like a restaurant in a gas station. So oh, wow. they just found a place to cook, but it was so good. It was just so, you know, not pretentious. You get your napkin, get your thing, get your thing. They put this thing on there. It's inexpensive. And it was just better than any brand chain, anything. I mean, I'm sure they might try to say something else in Texas or one of these other places, but Kansas is in my mind, like you go there for the, the ribs. 
It's crazy. I haven't, I haven't been to that state yet. I've been to a few of the Western U.S. states because um, you know I've driven down, done the road trip thing, and I've been to Florida, Massachusetts, and New York, but I haven't been to any of the other states yet. But yeah, there's quite a few places I need to get to. I'd love yeah. to go to Washington. Yeah, well, Washington's great. You should, do, you should, you should. Uh, no, how how your knees, right? So, can you do Kilimanjaro next year? Am I going to talk you into that, or would that be a dangerous um, idea? I well, I'm getting it fixed in two weeks, and then they okay. said I'll recuperate within two to six weeks. I think they said there you go. so. Uh, yeah, ask him. You like, hey, Doc, he's talking to this American. He thinks that I should climb Mount Kilimanjaro next year. What do you think? What are my chances? I'll ask him. What time? When did you say you're going? Is it late next year or early? I'm in ju- July. I was gonna do it in July this year. I'll just do it July next year. Okay. Is is it really hot then? Because it because they're near the equator anyway, so it's like yeah. it makes no difference between summer and winter. On the equator, like whoa. Oh. oh okay. But what's crazy is you go up, and so yeah. you're right. You're in shorts and a t-shirt, and then eventually you're in winter pants, parka, gloves, mitten, hat, snow pants, or whatever toward the top. Cause it's, wow. it's always snowy up there and it's right on the equator. It's crazy. How many of you are going? Uh, right now, just me. Oh, okay. Yeah. But what, what um, I did for this pastime was um, I put, I created like an info doc with all the details on it and then I just was sharing it with people being like, anyone that wants to come, come join in. Okay. You listening well, right now, you can come join. We turn into a whole <laughs> event, right? the marketing event, Mar- mountain marketing. But uh, oh, yeah, I like the alliteration. I'll ask my surgeon, see what he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ask him. T- tell him I was a crazy American that had an idea. See what he says. I'm like, ah, oh, those Americans. They always, them and their crazy ideas. I have a question for you before we get too far and um, close up here. Because I don't know if you looked at the time. Things just like, when you have a good conversation, it just, they just go. Wow, okay. Um, if you could, because here's the hypothetical. And I know you've listened to a couple shows. So you can go back in time and talk to yourself. Um, Nah, we're not going to use university, but like go back and talk to yourself at Edmonton early on, early on in your life. Where, if you could go advise yourself, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Um, the advice I'd give myself is to have more faith in my ability mm. and to back myself more and be willing to fail. And that it doesn't matter if you try something and give it a legitimate shot if you fail, because then at least you've learned something. But I think I've, throughout my career, I've held myself back thinking, no, I shouldn't do that. Um, Or, you know, I don't know enough about it, or I don't have enough experience, or uh, I need to do this before I get to that. But, you know, sometimes life is all about jumping in and just learning from there. And if you actually look at the consequences, if you measure them, they're not as drastic as you think it might be. So, you know, what if you fail at doing something? So um, lots of successful people have actually had lots of failures before that. Sometimes people are looked at as being overnight successes, but they might've had right. quite a few nights of failure before that. So yeah, I'd back myself more, have more faith in myself, maybe go out on my own sooner than what I did and be a bit more pointed in what I was going to do rather than just meander and wait for things to happen. Uh, that's how I, that's what I'd say to myself. Wow. You know, when you mentioned the um, measure of the consequences, I've never heard someone say that, but it's like, yeah, okay. How bad is it really going to be? If you, if you go on this leap and try this thing out and move to Australia or go across the country or like or try a new job or New York, how bad is it? What could really, what's the worst that could happen? And then if you, 
think about it and you're like, that's actually not that bad. I can recover. I won't die from that. I'm not advocating swimming with sharks. We're just saying <laughs> change the thinking life up a little bit. It's not that bad. Yeah. And, and measuring that and saying, calculating it out. And then maybe encouraging yourself to go for it, not analyze everything all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think you can overanalyze. I think some yeah. people tend to do that. I think I actually do that too. And I just mull it over. But you're right. There are very few things that lead to death, right? So it's like, yeah. how, bad, how bad could it be? I mean, what's the big deal? So um, it's pretty much impossible to get through life without some failures. So right. it's right. almost like that. Was it Warren Buffett that said that, yeah, if you've succeeded at everything in life, everything you've done is too, has been too easy? Something to that effect. So, sure. Sure. Yeah, kind of like I could see that. There's a common t-shirt I've seen in like military places and has the phrase, but did you die? Right. So okay. it's, and it's just the whole point is, you know, someone telling their story, or, Oh, this is so terrible, but did you die? You didn't. So it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, you're going to be good. That's really right, good. So- I've never seen that t-shirt, but yeah, that's, that's really cool. That's, um, that reminds you of what's important. Yeah. And then you marine humor, right? Someone's like, Oh, this is going on. It's terrible. And we're like, bro, did you die? <laughs> no. Okay. You're good. <laughs> Dust yourself back up. Get back over there. And to your point, you got to learn. If you can learn from it, then it's a lesson. It's more valuable than a success sometimes. That's right. As long as you actually draw from it what you can. Right. Um, that's right. Because if you didn't learn anything from it, then it's a wasted opportunity. Super wasted. Um, right. Yeah. Um, well, this has been crazy, man. Um, where can people connect with you? They want to reach out? Well, they can reach out on LinkedIn. So yeah. uh, they can find me and my URL is Brent M. Walters because some Brent Walters is using my URL. But what a yeah, poser. M is, should, should yeah. copyright, you should ping him on copyright and have him get kicked off of LinkedIn. Yeah, I think I might actually write yeah. to the CEO and see what he says. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah, so M for Michael, uh, that's my middle name. But yeah, nice. Brent Walters. Or they could go to my website, which is b2bdigital.com.au. So of course, I'm in Australia, so we have to have the .au for those of you us so um com.au that sounds cool though sounds like so b2bdigital.com.au that's a cool address thank you uh yeah i was actually surprised i got it years ago um i think i tried to get b2bdigital.com but i think somebody has it and they're sitting on it so Uh, they're hoping to yeah there's wanting to sell it at some point but yeah so it's b2bdigital.com.au um, I don't have a Twitter account anymore. I actually deleted it a few years ago. So what I was doing was really? that I was, yeah, I was spending so much of my life two dimensionally uh, on screens that I thought I just have to pare back a bit so I can go out and smell the roses. You know what yeah. I mean? So, so uh, I deleted a couple of social media accounts and I have a couple of other social media accounts that I don't use. They're just like kind of sitting there, but that's probably the best place. So, but huh. um, you know, two places enough. So it's no more Twitter. What, what, what about, is there Facebook? Is that big down there? Or? Um, it's big down here, but on principle, I'm trying to avoid Facebook. Okay. So, what else? So you, do you, do you do any social platform like Instagram or anything like that? Or um, I've got an Instagram account, but it's not for business. It's just my own account and I'm not doing much with you, it. I like you might Instagram. be a spy just like your parents, man. This is interesting. Like you're untraceable. Stealth, stealth mode. Yeah. Stealth mode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um yeah, so I, I'm not in Europe where I think there's a law there that you have a right to be forgotten. So like you yeah. have the ability to have Google strip everything away about you. So I right. can't do that here, but maybe that will come in time. But um, 
I sort of figure it's hard to do everything and everything well. So my feeling yeah. is that I should just have a couple of things and do a couple of things really well rather than just be half-assed at a whole bunch of things. Cause it's I used true. to have everything before. Like I had like Pinterest and Instagram and Facebook and try to do everything across it and do a website and do a blog and my God, it's so draining. So it's hardly any time to do any work or live life if you're going to spend all your time. That's that true, man. We got to put the phone down and get out there and go for a walk or run or something. And yeah, uh, or go to gym now, now that it's open or train for Kilimanjaro. <laughs> train for Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Now we're talking. Well, cool, man. This has been fun. I mean, you look at the time. We just, whew, it's fast. Huh? Time flies. It's, 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 yeah, it's so funny because there's so much of the stuff I want to talk to you about. But I thought, yeah, it was, I actually want to learn about you too. That's why I asked the questions. I know yeah, it was cool. We mean, yeah, I know we meandered a bit off marketing, but I thought, I just, yeah, I want to talk about life because life is bigger than marketing. Yeah. It's bigger than marketing. Life is marketing. Marketing is life. <laughs> there's another t shirt. There's another t shirt. Well, we'll split the proceeds. <laughs> It'll go to the Kilimanjaro fund. <laughs> yes, that'd be a worthy fund. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. It, it's been fun, just honestly chit chatting and having a conversation. I know some of these shows, it's just like, you know, me with a professor from Wharton just being my brain being poured into. But other times, I mean, I enjoy this too, where we're just really hashing out some topics and um, it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Look, it was such a blast for me too. I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, I was kind of sweating on it a bit the past couple of days thinking, oh, what are we going to talk about? Because you've had some really, really interesting guests. <laughs> oh my God. Right. It's like, wow, what could I say? It's interesting. But um, yeah, because I've looked at snippets at some of the other podcasts, but I'm going to go through them because like some of them are really, really super interesting. So yeah. Uh, well, well like now welcome to the club, that. man. <laughs> Thank interesting. You. You're living in all sorts of different countries, Trinidad. Also, that's it crazy cool story and uh and you just still keep the rock star going you still playing every now and then um now they're like my daughter's moved out of the house so can i actually set up the room because before the kids were born i actually had a room set up with the whole music gear because you know how it's crazy just to pack everything away do you oh, play yeah. any instruments do you play any instruments yourself oh do i play um yeah. I, when i was growing up a trumpet okay cool wow yeah. did that drive your parents nuts no, they have mutes and stuff. You can put them on the top of it. Put it, put you in the basement. Put a mute on. It's good. It's not like I play drums or something. In which case, they would hear it a lot. Yeah. You know. Well, that's a good thing about North American houses. The basements. They don't have basements in Australia. Oh. It must be a cold weather thing because I think in the southern U.S. you don't have basements. They don't have them there either. Yeah. Correct. It's a cold weather thing, so they don't have them here. But um, yeah, so I can get the Fender out. I love Fender guitars. But, yeah. Um, and I love the Beatles. So, uh, yeah, so I'll play every now and then. I suppose the, something artistic keeps me grounded. So I did painting a few years ago, so I'd like to go back to that. But it's so hard to find time. I mean, I've had my own business since 2016. So yeah. you know what it's like starting a business. And yeah. um, you've got to plug away at it. So All-consuming. Yes, it can be. But there's still the inner rock star that you cannot replace the inner rock star, right? The hair may like DNA. not there, but it's still there. Like it, it's still there. It is still there. I love guitars. They're like they're not just instruments; they're works of art. Yeah. And then you create works of art with a work of art. Try to. <laughs> Try to right works <laughs> to something. To. Yeah. Well, you know, for the people listening, if you've learned something, and I know you have, because I literally have notes over here, just like always. Um, 
then then share this episode with someone else, right? Share it with, you know, send it an email, put it on LinkedIn, but put your takeaways on there. There's so many things we talked about, uh, but really planning for change was one of the themes that just, and the different things, the economic, the competitors, the market forces, internal, external. We talked about a lot of good stuff and then we went on crazy tangent road and had a blast and I hope everyone had a blast along with us. So, um, man, thanks again, Brent. This'll be cool. I'll have to have you come back on here and catch us up and tell us how the knee's going to be. Thank you very much, Casey. It's been a pleasure and, uh, yeah, I love chatting with you and, um, yeah, just hi to everyone. Hey everyone. That's it. Want to say hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> hi mom. Yeah. Nadine, my sister, uh, my auntie and uncle, everybody. <laughs> right. Edmonton. Which means they need to listen to the, the complete end so they can hear their shout out. And that's what they need to do. Um, yeah, I teach my mom how to listen to the podcast. Yeah, I think they can sit through it. That's it. That's it, man. Well, thanks again. And for everyone out there listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time. 